The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook. I'm your hostess, Robin Hunnicky, and I'm here today with Chiani Pixel and Fernanda Diaz of Studio Pixel Punk. And I'm very excited to talk to them a little bit about their journey in video games and also their game Unsighted. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, Chiani and Fernanda. It's so nice to see you both. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit? about how you got into video games to get us started. Hello, I'm Tiani. I'm a programmer and pixel artist from Studio Pixel Punk. I'm very happy to be here today. And uh, I'll let Fernanda introduce herself first before <laughs> I start talking. Fantastic. Well, I'm Fernanda. I'm a developer and composer in Studio Pixel Punk, and uh, yeah, <laughs> if you can, if, if you like to, to talk first. Okay, so basically, we Uncited was our, our first game as Studio Pixel Punk, but both me and Fernanda already like had a past with, with games, with game development. I started like developing games very early on, like when I was very little, I, I was already aware of, of tools like the RPG Maker, because like I, it, ever since I was little, I always lo- loved games, but I think I I really wanted to know how, how they were made. So when I discovered tools like the RPG Maker or certain tools that allowed you to create levels for, for different games that really interested me. And I started learning how to do pixel art, how to do coding from a very, very early age. But eventually, as I grew older, I had to do other things with my life because especially here in Brazil, you don't hear much talk about like really working on game development as a career, at least back then. Nowadays, things are changing, but I, I had to find something else to, to study and to invest my time because there was no perspective of getting a job as a game developer, especially here in Brazil back then. But I, eventually I, I ended up going to an architecture college, but 
I really couldn't fit in. All I, I was thinking about was making games. I really wanted to go home and, and keep working on, on the stuff that I was working. And then at, at around this time, I heard about Unity, the, the game engine Unity. It was coming out and it, it was really great like for, for small teams to, to build entire games out of it. And I started learning it. And very soon, I noticed that there was a lot of job openings for for Unity. People were really working with this tool, so learning it stopped being just a hobby. So eventually, I, I quit my my previous college from architecture and started full time working with Unity. I I got a job working on on smaller companies here in Brazil to do stuff like mobile games. But I always wanted to make independent games, games that like where I could express myself and the things I believed in. So after a few years of working to other companies and doing some smaller projects here and there on my free time, I eventually started Pixel Punk. I met Fernanda and we started working on Unsighted. We got a publishing deal with Humble, Humble, Humble Games. And the rest is, I think, what, what you know. <laughs> the, <laughs> the game launched recent, recently yeah. and we're happy with the reception that, that it got. Yeah, it's a fantastic story and, and very similar to stories of, of uh, people who are in markets that are emerging in gaming where... There's this passion for gaming that comes from being exposed to video games when you're young. And then slowly over time, the tools make their way to your community. And then you can start seeing indies spring up and creating the sort of the little garden of indie games in, in that community. So it's it's really it's really lovely to sort of see the story over the last 20 years play out in all different kinds of cultures and all places all over the world as video games become both more multicultural and more open and diverse in general. Um, Fernanda, what's what's your half of the story? <laughs> well, uh, it's it's kind of similar. I I I've always uh, wanted to to tinker with games. I've I started my uh, my RPG maker for Tiani. Uh, my my version of that was uh, Wordcraft for uh, making Counter Strike uh, levels. <laughs> All <There> right. Was... <laughs> There was a, a very popular level made uh, here in Brazil. It was uh, CS Rio that the creator of that level had a lot of resources on their site uh, that taught like uh, how to use the tools, how to make the the levels, how to to program the the environment, the the effects and stuff. And that's how I got my start in, in game development. Uh, and I, I've always, uh, I've always been a musician too. I started uh, playing the guitar and the piano very, very early. And one day I just thought, well, I love games. I love music. Why can't I make music for games? And then I started uh, doing some uh, smaller stuff like game jams and uh, smaller hobby projects. Uh, I got I got in and dropped out of a uh, college too for electrical engineering, but 
That makes all three of us dropouts because I dropped out of my <laughs> PhD. So that's great. <laughs> we have a little yeah. party here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, eventually I I went to eventually I went to college for music too, and uh, and now uh, I found Tiani uh, between like those those small hobbies, the small hobby projects, and we started working on Unsighted, and the rest is history. <laughs> It's so inspiring, I think, to, to just to know that 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 your dedication to the concept of making games meant that you were taking these really large risks and like creating space for yourselves. Um, what gave you the courage to really to really take the leap as a studio and and think like, okay, we're going to go out there and and get a deal, and then and then how did that how did that happen? Like, I think for a lot of people in emerging markets, it seems like kind of a miracle when you take that step from, from just playing, you know, you're playing around in, in your, in your computer after work, and then suddenly you, you go to a jam and you meet people. And then it, I think that the step between that and where you are now is a little bit fuzzy, especially for younger developers. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, that part of the adventure? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of risks involved, but we also did a lot of planning because as you said, especially in, in, encounters such as ours where you don't get a lot of money from working with game development around here you really have to plan well when when you're going to quit your job and try to, to open a studio and that's what what we did because we we saved money for a long time to to be able to to comfortably do this without risking ourselves too much. And also we really invested our times with with Unsighted, like Unsighted began development even before Studio Pixel Punk, because I really wanted to to have a good project that could showcase like our skills and that we could make like to show people that we could make uh a good and quality game. So before we quit our jobs, we had like a demo of the game. That was the demo that we eventually sent to Humble Games and other events that we participated back then. But yeah, we waited until we had like a good product that was the initial unsighted demo and some some money saved. So we, we didn't risk ourselves too much. And yeah, we know this isn't possible for everyone, but yeah, you you really have to plan things, and this takes time. Like it was, it was kind of a a, a long term planning that we did to to achieve all this. But we're happy that it it paid out, and everything is going according to plan. <laughs> I mean, did you did you uh, attend a conference? To meet the humble folks, did you just send them the demo cold over the internet? How did it happen? Like where in yes. where in your timeline did that did that occur? So uh, we had uh, a demo sent to a big festival in here in Brazil, and that uh, caught a lot of, a lot of attention. Uh, we we talked to some publishers in the event, like uh, it was back in two thousand eighteen, I think. Uh, and 
there were there was a couple uh, other minor uh, events too that we sent the demo to but i think big festival was indeed the the biggest <laughs> <laughs> yeah so but <laughs> It's funny because Humble didn't approach us uh, directly because of uh, the, this festival. We got a lot of attention like uh, on Twitter and social media. And I think because of that attention that we got uh, on social media, then Humble approached us like on t on, over Twitter. And uh, we, we pitched the game to them and they liked it. We talked to, to a, 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 some other publishers too because... Uh, it's it's not it's not always it's almost never the best to go with the first publisher you talk to <laughs> uh, because <laughs> you have to have some perspective like oh are they lowballing me are they really valuing the 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 work that I'm about to do and yeah. but yeah that that was it it was over Twitter yeah and and Twitter was another part of our plan to. To share the game around. Nowadays, I have some conflicted feelings about Twitter, but yeah, but it's still a good way to, to showcase your work. So that's what we did back then. We we shared a lot of gifs of the game, and the game got really popular on Twitter just with the demo. And, and it's funny because the the initial demo was what we call a vertical slice of the game. So it was just one area of the game, but we we make sure to, to have all the UI of the game ready, a lot, of, a lot of music ready, but just for that one part so that the game looked complete and we could showcase to publishers that not only we can make a game, but we can make the systems around the game. Like the, it, it already had like an options menu where you could switch languages and things like that. So it's funny because back then a lot of people thought that the game was almost ready to come out, but no, it's just <laughs> that we did, we planned it to be a virtual slice to look ready so we could showcase to publishers that not only we can do the game, but we can do everything else as well. <laughs> how, how did you know to do this? Did, what, did, did that come to you through conversations with other developers or you know, looking at YouTubes or, I mean, like, how did you learn to do sort of more professional production planning? Was that something that you were doing in your other jobs? Uh, it's something that we learned along the way. Like, we we talked with other devs and we, we started noticing what publishers like to see on a project and... And really, I think, trying to, to replicate what we see on successful projects. And, and yes, there, there was a lot of experience that came with our previous jobs and hobby projects. It's, it's that story that even though it's our first released game, it's not the first game that we made. Like we, we've yeah. made previous projects, previous prototypes to get the, the experience to, to be able to do something like Uncited. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of people assume when they see a game come out from a new studio that it is their first title or that they're that they got very lucky. And, and it's very important to sort of reinforce that, like, actually, no, the successes that you see are often very deliberate for everything from your social media strategy to understanding what publishers would be looking for. I mean, even just being able to pitch a game, you know, remotely is is already a huge skill. 
Um, you know, I think that it's it's excellent to hear that you were like diligent about this. If you could go back in time, would you do anything differently, or do you feel like you did everything right at that stage of the development? I don't know. I think we we made a, a lot of things uh, right. It's it's obvious that uh, some changes uh, happened to the game along the way that. Uh, eventually, those changes uh, ended up uh, wasting a bit of time, but I think that's part of the process. If we didn't make those, we'd make like other changes. <laughs> so yeah, on the on the the whole on the high level concept, I think we we'd do basically the same. And would you would you now explain a little bit about what your goals were for Unsighted as a game? Like, you know, when you started it, I mean, you know, if anyone reads any interviews with you, it's clear that you both played lots of video games and you had a lot of inspirations and and you and the game has a sort of classic look, but that it's also reminiscent of, you know, kind of more modern takes on these genres like the stuff that's built at Supergiant, which I also understand were were a big influence on you. Um, what were you trying to do when you set out to make Unsighted? So I think, yeah, we do have a lot of inspiration from other games, but as you said, I think it's it's obvious when you start playing the game, like it's heavily influenced by games like The Legend of Zelda and Metroid. But we, we also take a lot of inspiration from, from stuff outside of video games. And I think what makes Unsighted kind of unique is is how we, we mixed some of our worldview and brought it to this genre of video game that sometimes don't don't tackle these issues. So there's a lot of stuff that we believe in about diversity and representation in, in media that we, we felt like was missing a little bit in this genre of games because we love action exploration games, but... It's rare that you see one that will will tackle those issues, but I, I think things are are changing fast. Like yes, three years ago it was a bit harder to find games like this, but nowadays it's more common, and we're happy about about this. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a real victory that that we uh, see more and more games. Um, focusing on, you know, a variety of characters in terms of just not just like ethnic background or skin color, but also LGBTQ plus and like looking at the ways in which we also have started to reassess the way that we portray indigenous cultures in gaming still has a long way to go. Um, what, what were some of the things that you wanted to do on the technical side with the game? Did you, did you have goals around, um, like gameplay designs and systems designs that were that were really there from the outset that you feel uh, influenced Unsighted. Yeah, so uh, one big thing that we we love is like the speed running and uh, the way that you think when you're you speed run, like the routing and stuff. And it's funny because it's we played uh, a mod of. Uh, Legend of Zelda and Metroid, the Links to the Past and Super Metroid, that was a randomizer that puts like everything, uh, every item uh, in random places, and you have to <laughs> to really find out like how the mechanics of the game work and see what you can and what you cannot do and make like creative uses of the items and of the resources that you have. And we wanted to make a game that that has this. And uh, especially those being like those two games being uh, 
part of our main main set of influences. We we'd like we loved the, this concept of like it's like those games, but the formula is all shaken up, and you have a lot of freedom. You have a, a lot of uh, things that you can do, and the game doesn't necessarily hold your hand to to like oh no, you can't do this, you can't do that. We'd like to open up the possibilities to to players who really master like the system of the systems of the game the items how they work how they can be acquired how they can be used to to make a lot of interesting uh paths around the world we we have an achievement that is uh the reverse boss order that you can you can play on side <laughs> and kill the first the first boss last and the last boss first and uh i think that's that's a really fun way to to play games, and I love when games let you do that. <laughs> yeah, and even though speedrunning is very popular nowadays, it's rare to see games like try to to make players speedrun it and and make a lot of intentional design choices around it. Because as we noticed while developing Unsighted, it's very hard to make a game that's that can work no matter the order that you do all this stuff in the game. And we, we really tried to make speedrunning more approachable, even for casual players. And that's why time is a, is a very important aspect of the story. And at, at your, when you play the game for the first time, you probably won't save everyone. You will not be able to save everyone. But we feel that creates an urge, even in casual players, to try and play the game again and see how different they can make out all this stuff and try to, to beat the game faster because when you play the game faster, you are rewarded with saving more characters. So we put a lot of hidden stuff in the game that you discover when you try to do things out of order. And we're happy that a lot of people are getting this about the game and a lot of people have told us already that they never tried speedrunning before, but they wanted to speedrun Unsighted to see all the, the story beats and all the hidden stuff that we have in the game for players that try to speedrun it and do things out of order. You know, this is really interesting because what it means is like on a mechanical level, uh, your game is is kind of queer and that it, it doesn't really necessarily, <laughs> it doesn't really uh, adhere to the sort of, sort of more binary concepts that we have in games, you know, win-loss and like doing things in a certain order. And what I love is that you've just inherently created an experience that is expressive through play uh, where you can, you can experiment and try different things in different orders and get rewarded for that, which, you know, the world isn't necessarily that friendly to. Sometimes we're told to do things in specific order. And, you know, even just what we were talking about earlier with you, with you dropping out in order to pursue your goals and then, or reassigning yourself from architecture to, you know, game development essentially. Um, and like working in technical fields because that felt like a better pathway. Um, what's so interesting about your story and your game, I think, is that you're doing you're doing your own path in both the development of it in the way that you created it and then coming up from the community of of basically almost very, very little commercial development into this blossoming community now, like really, really trying to make your own way. And I guess, 
that's both awesome, but it's also a lot of work. (laughs) I know it's very difficult and sometimes can feel like a lot of labor. Like how have you, um, how did you support each other, uh, in the process and how did your, how did your community as it was growing, uh, help you as well, um, as you were trying to do what is really like an extraordinary thing? So just before I answer that, I really liked what you said about the game being like queer, even in the game mechanics, because yeah, yeah that, that's an intentional choice that we, we made because we we always try to break with conventions, especially conventions of AAA games. So a lot of decisions in Unsighted was like, how a AAA game will do this and how can we make it different to make it more <laughs> unexpected? And and it's funny because sometimes it, it gets pl- players off guards because a lot of people can't even classify the game in a, in a genre of games. People say it's a Metroidvania, it's a Zelda-like. Some people even say it's a roguelike because you can have uh, states of of complete failure in, in your save file, even though it's it's really hard to do so. <laughs> and we're ha- very happy that we made a game that can like be outside of these these borders of game genres that sometimes are very restrictive to, to game design. And that was indeed our intention. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. I mean as as someone who who has always been like, why are there so many games about the same activity with almost the same set of characters and the same set of mechanics. Like I understand that marketplaces create subtle competition, but you know, there's a point at which I really love to look at a game and see it just exploding genre conventions or like blending things together. Similar to music, you know, if you think about what happened in China with DACA tapes and the kinds of bands that came out after all the different genres were exposed, you know, to a single population at almost the same time you get these amazing blends. And I think that one of the things about your game that's so lovely is that it is like blending all these influences, but it has its unique quality. It feels very, it feels very Brazilian, even though it also has a lot of Japanese influences, right? Like you've really, you've taken, I think a lot of different elements and created a synergy and, you know, a medley in a way. Um, But that mechanical process is so stand out that I think that's why, you know, when a game has really good mechanics, people that love games love it right? That's just what happens. And I've seen that time and time again. It doesn't have to have beautiful graphics. It doesn't have to be, you know, massively multiplayer, like, you know, something like Journey can appeal just because it feels innovative. And I think that that's, for me, that's what true gamers love. So I'm always excited (laughs) to see that. So how did you, how did you get the support to do this? Because I know it's not easy, like having, having spent a long time myself trying to push on different things. It's, it can be very exhausting sometimes and you can feel very alone or also very scared that it won't work. Like, how did you support each other in that process? Uh, it was, it, it was indeed a very hard process. It was, uh, developing a game for, for so long. Like we, we worked on, on site for about, uh, almost four years, I think. And, uh, yeah, it, 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 it is indeed very hard, but, uh, we, we, we always tried to to share uh, some of our some of the work, and uh, we live together now, and we we like to to share some work. That oh, today I'm I have to 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 do something uh, in the game that needs my full attention. So, okay, so I'll I'll take care of the cats. I'll take care of the the lunch, <laughs> <laughs> and 
yeah, like we we support each other and uh, in those ways, uh, I think also getting the the publisher deal, the publishing deal, was also a big thing because it gave us the stability, the financial stability uh, that we needed to to dedicate ourselves to this huge, huge project. And uh, yeah, but mostly, mostly it was we we looking out for each other. And we ha we have some amazing uh, people here in Brazil too that uh, make uh, game events. Not so much now in, in COVID times, but uh, yeah. But we we'd had some uh, people that made games that uh, they made events about games that uh, really supported us. Uh, and like the public in general, really really hypes us because people people. Brazilian people like to see Brazilian games thrive, I think. <laughs> and that, that was always uh, a thing that we, we noticed. Like, Of course, that there are a lot of people here that have uh, some kind of prejudice uh, because traditionally we, we don't have many games coming out of Brazil. Uh, we, we have a handful, but uh, we, the, the market is beginning to bloom maybe now and in, in in the near future but yeah. people there there were some naysayers out oh, the game made in brazil can never work because in brazil we don't make games but most people really like to see uh brazilian games thrive and, and when we get coverage uh people people love it and i think that that's it for support i think yeah, but also after the game launched, we received a lot of support from, from our, our community, our growing community of players that are playing the game because as we, we explained it before, there's a lot of controversial decisions in the game and you know how gamers are <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> like, we, I, I don't think, I think there's not... Not a single design decision that we made in the game that we haven't received a hate mail about. Like, there are people that will complain about the game having a time limit. There are people that will complain about the game being a top-down Metroidvania because they think Metroidvanias can't work in top-down. <laughs> and even, like, really bad stuff, like people that don't like female characters, black characters. We've received a lot of hate like this due to, to our conscious decisions to, to break with these conventions. And sometimes these things get to us and, and can be really hard to deal with this, but we're happy that the majority of comments we see around are positive. And whenever something bad like those hate mails reaches out more to the public, there's a lot of backlash against it. So we're very happy with the community that that is growing around the game. That's fantastic. And I think that it's really important, especially as we continue to innovate um, in these ways and create space for, you know, characters of color and queer characters, trans characters, outcomes in games that aren't always happy, where you can't always be the hero, where you can't always win all the time, where, where not everything is focused on the graphics, these sorts of fundamental shifts in the way that we think about video games. It's really important for fans to support the creators and to be vocal and to help protect them and not just be bystanders when it comes to 
receiving that kind of hate, you know, I mean, and I'm also just like, I'm sorry that you have to go through that in order to be innovators in the field. I dream of and have dreamed of for 20 years now of a time when that's no longer the case. Um, do you feel like, do you feel like you were able to find a community that, that was unique to your game? And if so, like, was it through Twitter? Do you have a discord? Like how do you engage with your players? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, there, there is, uh, we have a discord that, uh, where people, uh, post like speedrunning tips and uh, people discuss the game, the story of the game. The We, we had some fan art too made. It's amazing. <laughs> and yeah, we have our, our own community uh, of, there's a lot of people on Steam forums too that uh, are very active and like talking about the game, like experimenting with stuff. And we really love that, uh, this that we put into the game, this aspect of uh, expression of you can you can really experiment with stuff. You can really make the your gameplay your own. Like you can play the 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 game in many many different ways. It's paying off. Like uh, people are really talking about it and uh, experimenting, and it's it's always a joy to see like when people find a new discover a new combination of like weapons and skills and chips and, yeah. and cogs and like yeah that that's exactly why we put all of that in the game <laughs> it's it's very good one thing that we're happy about our community is how the game became like the favorite game for a lot of people especially because we 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 made those decisions that could be interpreted as controversial decisions. We receive a lot of comments of people saying like things like, oh, a top-down Metroidvania with focus on speedrunning with a lot of queer characters. That game is made for me. <laughs> and we, we feel that because of we took a lot of risks with the game, the game resonated with a lot of people and became the favorite game for a lot of people because you don't see a lot of games like it. So you know, we're this, really happy about this. This is so, it's so fantastic. And it's something that also, again, like looking at the way that game markets were traditionally marketed too for the last, I would say maybe in the, through the 2000s and into like the 2010s, there was just this concept of like games are for a very small market and it's a very specific group of people that can afford them. And therefore we only make games for this one marketplace. And as, as time has passed, and mobile phones have revolutionized the way that we engage with technology. You've seen this massive explosion in marketplaces. And I think that it's really still, it's not clear to most people around the world that what you need to create a success if you're living a sustainable, creative life in a city where, you know, you're relatively, you know, you have good access to, you know, to the basics You need a community of a certain size, but you don't need to have a community the size of FIFA or the size of Zelda, you know, like those, those kinds of gaming communities are massive and global, but to create something that will help you live and be creative and resonate with other people that like your art, you know, you can, you can do that with a relatively unique and focused market and you built a game for them and they responded to you. And so I think that that's a really important thing to emphasize 
on the podcast, especially for creators, you know, from around the world who are like, oh, I'll never be as big as Mario, you know, is that that's an outsized, you know, sort of goal to set for yourself. And like saying that, you know, I can be like unsighted in my community, I think is a much more achievable goal. Like, did you know you were going to be able to hit hit that market and like really understand it and get that connection with these players and like have a community that made sense? Or were you just like hoping? I think uh, we, we, we never knew like for sure we did, we, we, we are not uh, marketing people. We don't uh, have backgrounds in this, like to know for sure, oh, <laughs> yeah. this, this is going to hit this market specifically. And it's like X percent of the X platform <laughs> players. Like right. we, we, we weren't thinking about uh, that so much. We were mostly thinking about like, uh, there are a lot of gamers that grew up in a similar, uh, with a similar background in us. Like uh, they grew up playing the, these games like uh, Zelda, Metroid, and they also, in, in, like there's a lot of people who wanted to see themselves represented in these games too. And who aren't generally seen in these games, in, in like in the in the characters of those games, and we wanted to make a game for those people. That yeah. mostly that was mostly what we were thinking about. Like, and for the people with a similar interest than us, like uh, that that what what Tiani was talking about, like. The, the the person who said, "Oh, this is a queer game with lots of speedrunning mechanics, and <laughs> it's really hard, and it it okay, lets you express yourself." Like, yeah, we we'd love that game. We'd love to have that game growing up. So we made it, and I think that there there are a lot of people who also would loved to have that game growing up, and who liked decided to when they got to play it. And yeah, we we were like we knew that like maybe we, we would have like one or two people saying it was their favorite games, but we we, we were surprised with how, how many people approached us saying things like that. But also when you make something like this, there's a lot of chance that we you can break like your bubble and reach other other markets. Sometimes we there's a lot of people that approach us praising the game that we can see it's not the the target audience of the game, but even 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 so they they, they liked it. So it's nice to see that we, our game not only can be played for our target target audience and people who really loves it, but it can also reach other people and maybe it will be the first contact of, of the, these other people with certain things that we, we tackle on the game. So yeah, that, that's another great aspect and something to have in mind when, when you're developing your game and and knowing that you don't, like you, you said, you don't have to have a market as big as Zelda or FIFA to release a game. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just so so incredible. And like now that you've both that you've both achieved this, you know, sort of really fantastic milestone. You've shipped the game. It's 
doing well. People really love it. You have mega fans um, and you have fan art in your Discord and it's like you're living the dream. How do you think about uh, what comes next? Are you thinking like, okay, we should definitely do DLC. We should definitely do a new title. We should do a spinoff in the universe, a different kind of mechanic. Like, have you had the time to kind of think about that or are you still just kind of basking in your success? (laughs) Well, uh, we... We are mostly resting right now <laughs> because it was uh, such a it's good such a huge amount of work that we had to to do not only before the game launch but a, a bit after too like for, with patches and community management and uh, support for the the players and that kind of stuff but we are already thinking of the of next uh, things we 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 don't know how much we 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 want to to say right now but we're definitely working on 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 something else but it is something else it's not uh it's not a DLC uh maybe we can do something like that uh but it's not in our plans right now <laughs> it's fantastic to get the break and the chance to just kind of daydream about something new i always need a long time between shipping games so i usually I usually start daydreaming about something before I'm done. That keeps me going during the, during the long nights and like difficult experiences of like fixing the little bugs that just don't want to go away. The little tiny things that you have to do to really get a game out the doors, sometimes very exhausting to a creative person. So um, I certainly always start thinking about the next thing probably well before I should. Um, how, are you, how are you sort of enjoying your break? Are you reading? Are you... I mean, people mostly aren't traveling. Like, what are you doing to, in your in your downtime between games? How are you sort of self caring at this time? Well, actually, even though Fernanda said we were resting a lot, I wish we we were resting a little bit more because we're still <laughs> having to deal with with a lot of things, especially like some bureaucracy, like because we live in Brazil and like with with the game say sales and stuff like that it's a lot of bureaucracy to to deal with these things here in brazil so you mean like in terms of getting your statements and making sure you're getting paid and all that stuff yeah 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 yeah. i mean it's it's not related to the publisher like humble games is awesome in this regard but it's more like where we live like making games in brazil is really hard in all aspects like there's a lot of things that would be so much easier if only we live it in the US. So in the last few weeks, we, we've been like working a lot, maybe as managers of Studio Pixel Punk. And yeah, dealing with the paperwork and everything. Yeah, and it's... <laughs> <laughs> that is actually the, <laughs> that's the least the least fun thing about about being a studio is 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 dealing with the the business side of it. I myself have been have been very very busy for the last six months, specifically trying to accomplish something. And then when you finally get it done, you look back and you're just like, wow, that was a lot of paperwork. <laughs> yeah, dealing with accounting, paperwork in general. <laughs> Would you ever consider hiring someone to do all that stuff for you? Like, you know, where you could just basically be creative all day or do you get something out of uh, the experience of learning how to run a business? Because it is, it is, I mean, it is, it is hard work and it's not something that we often talk about, but as a creative, you know, it, it saps your energy, but you also 
I don't know. I think it gives you some sort of education maybe about how the world works, at least now. Yeah, we you have hired a couple of people to work, especially with uh, accounting and managing, but it's still a lot of work, like managing those. <laughs> yeah, and we've had like a lot of problems. I don't know if I'm being <laughs> too too specific here, <laughs> but we we've had a lot of problems finding someone here in Brazil that understands how the game market works and what what is a game studio. So. We spent a lot of months just searching for someone to help us with the accountability and and with all the business of, of the company because it's not something that people usually work with here in Brazil. So, yeah, that's been the reality of Studio Pixel Funk in the last <laughs> few months. It's a good problem to have trying to track all that money and make sure that it gets into your bank account. That's actually a good thing, so... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, is, that's... it is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I guess in our free time, we we love like playing retro games, and we're getting a lot of we're playing a lot of Game Boy lately. We're getting those fancy new screens because like the original Game Boy screens are so bad you can't even yeah. look at those things. And we've been getting into <laughs> modding our old Game Boys and discovering new games on it and maybe getting inspiration from, from these games. You know, I love I loved the Game Boy and especially the the DS was a real was a real win for me. I played so much DS games and like there were so many really cool games. Do you, I don't know if you remember the the bit generation series that came out for DS that was that they were originally made in Japan really minimalist game designs where everything was essentially like just pixels and it's like the beach trip runner. Yeah. Like, but yeah, yeah. bit trip runner. So, so amazing. And like, I really, really, really love Caloris. That other game that they released was so great. And I've always loved those like very simple mechanical games that were like almost mobile games, but on the DS, I thought they were so excellent. Yeah. I've played a lot of, uh, beach trip. Uh, the one that, uh, it's like a Pong game in the Wii. It's I forgot the name, but it's it's from that that series, uh, Bit Trip Core, I think. Yeah, there's Bit Trip Core that's very much like Pong. Yeah, that that's the one I played a lot of it. Uh, it, it it had only like a couple of songs, and it's like four songs, but they were really really hard. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's something that we, we like to do. Like, we don't play a lot of, like, AAA and games that are coming out. Like, we like to be aware of them so that we know what's going on in the industry, but we like to, to look for inspiration in older titles and lesser-known titles because there's so much good stuff that is left behind that we, we really like to, to research. Yeah, you should really look up the Bit Generations games. They're so great. There's one called Sound Voyager that's super awesome. Um, there's basically a line racer that's really amazing as well. And they're all just pixels. And so it's just, it was very minimalist game design. And, and, uh, and, and, uh, there, there, there's GBA, <clears throat> uh, you know, versions of them. Um, and you can see them, you can see them on the YouTubes and they're just, they were so cool. And I don't think a lot of people played them. They were only 20 bucks too. So they were, they were small games and they released like six, I think that were all about 20 bucks. And I remember going to, 
sort of hunt around in LA to see if I could find them because they were so cool. When you when you think about what it is about those more sort of simple times and games and like in particular that that generation of, of of cart games, like what is it that you find so attractive about that generation of gaming? The thing that I like the most is seeing how a lot of stuff have wasn't like defined yet like I was saying earlier nowadays you have like these genres of games and they, they are so well defined and you have like certain fandoms of genres of games like there are fans of Metroidvanias that say that Metroid, a Metroidvanian must be like this and this and this and we feel like this sometimes gets in the heads of the developers and we try to stay away from that and we like to play all the games because you see in a lot of good games there wasn't these conventions for example a lot of people like to cite like Castlevania Symphony of the Night as an example of what a Metroidvania should be but if you research about it you know that actually Koji Igarashi wanted to make a Castlevania game that was more like Legend of Zelda he wasn't thinking about Metroid when he made when he made Symphony yeah. of the Night. So it's it's really fun. For example, I was playing just recently the Dragon Quest Monsters game for the, the Game Boy Color. <laughs> and it's sort of a ripoff of Pokemon, but it came so close to the original Pokemons that you feel that the monster collecting genre of games wasn't very well defined. And there's a lot of strange decisions that they take. And it's really fun to, to try to put yourself in that mindset, how, how they thought about games back then when you didn't have like this giant catalog of games to, to be inspired. And you maybe you could think more freely about the game you're going to make. Yeah, another game I've been playing uh, that's kind of like that is uh, Telefang. I don't know if... Uh... <laughs> People know this this game. Uh, I forget the whole title of the game. It's it's, but it's a Japanese only game that I'm playing a fan translation of it, and it it has like it, it was launched mostly in this Pokemon hype. It's a monster collecting game too, and it also has like a bunch of weird decisions that we love because, <laughs> uh, like it, it's so funny to see. Uh, developers thinking without having to 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 adhere to strict like uh strict rules that uh people expect about the genre and it's it's like i think it's very good to to draw inspiration for games from that time because that happened a lot like uh, uh things weren't uh too too solid genres weren't too solid back then so it's it's a thing that I like too too much very much about the, this this era of gaming. You know, I actually really love to think that the genres really aren't solid, and that it's just that we're seeing them uh, more clearly because they're larger. So, like if you think of game design as a landscape, and you're on the ground floor of game design, and you're looking out into a field of games, there are certain genres that are just quite tall, like a tall sequoia you know, like fighting games or shooting games or racing games, football games, you know, sports games in general. And then then there's, you know, now there's a MOBA sort of tree. And then there's like little 
smaller trees, you know, that are, you know, like dance games and rhythm games. And then down from there, there's just like a field of flowers and there's all kinds of games that are getting made. And people are experimenting all the time. It's just that they're very hard to see because they're all the same height and they go out forever. <laughs> and that as we continue to sort of add our our interests and weight to specific genres, um, we also create little trees around those trees that are really big. And I think that what you're trying to do is is to sort of look at a much more holistic landscape. And I think that's really important. But also, like, I think that the, the landscape of games is still infinite. When I look at machine learning and procedurally generated level design, um, procedurally generated narrative, and procedurally generated music, and like generative generative adversarial networks, you know, like the kinds of AI that is starting to infiltrate gaming. I think there are actually like a whole new series of weird ass genres getting, getting ready to be made. And I think it's really important to kind of have inspirational developers like yourselves out there trying to, to create new trees, you know, and build up new, new flowers into something that's like, you know, even more gorgeous than the, the typical tree that you would see, you know? Yeah, and to like we feel that nowadays we have like a lot of technology, and we can make like a lot of innovative games. Because if you think like I, we were saying about retro games, like the Game Boy is like so tiny and has so little memory, and even so, there were a lot of games that can be considered innovative for for its time. So, so yeah, we, we really like to make games that defy those genres and maybe create something unique so we hope our next game will be like incited in the sense that people won't be able to tell exactly which genre of game it is <laughs> so when you're thinking about the next few years do you think about growing the studio or you want to stay small like have you thought at all about kind of lifestyle choices that come from having the success that you have um, and if so, like, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on growing versus staying tiny? Mm, we, we, we really love to make games like in this more independent fashion, like just me and Fernanda throwing ideas and mm, like we doing most of this stuff. And like, once you, we have a, an idea, we don't have to go through a lot of people to get it done. So, and we still have a lot of ideas that we want to, to turn into games. So I think for the, the near future, we still want to, to keep like things maybe like a bit smaller, like working on the games ourselves. But maybe, who knows, once we, we get tired and, and, and like our drive to make games slow down, maybe we can try spending the, the studio and like getting more people and and making more projects at once. But but for now, we, we still have a lot of ideas that we want to do ourselves. So in the sort of wrap up for the podcast, I'd just like to talk to you a little bit about some of the some of the things that really um that really helped you succeed. Obviously it sounds like your your relationship with Humble has been really positive. Did you have any mentors or lessons um, that were shared with you by other developers that that really came through for you and made a difference in sort of taking your game from concept to final? Mm. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this question. Do you have something, <laughs> Fernanda? 
I don't know. I I don't think we had. Uh, we mostly did did things ourselves. Uh, we have we had people uh, that helped us with uh, testing and giving some ideas, giving some feedback. But I think that's it's mostly us. We've had a lot of inspiration from other devs here in Brazil. As we said before, making games here in Brazil wasn't really a thing a few years ago. So when we saw a few indie games coming out from people here in Brazil, we got really inspired and we got in touch with them. Like some of these people, I don't, I don't know if you know them, but from, from Joy Masher, the folks that made Blazing Crown, they are really nice people. There, there's the folks from Midboss that work with Maddy Thorson on Celeste. Yeah. Some of them are from Brazil. So they were really inspirations for us, like seeing how... The, the people from Langhat House, for yeah. Dendara, they were, they are really cool too. They helped a lot. Yeah, all these devs like showed us that we can make like cool games here in Brazil and... Not only that, not only they inspired us, but eventually we reached out, reached out to them and asked for help in a few things. So, yeah, so, I think especially if you're from like uh, Global South or, or a country that does not have that much representativity in, in, in game design, one of our advices is for people to, to try to know their communities and reach out to people. Don't be afraid to reach out to people that you admire to get help and to try to learn how they how they do stuff. And maybe you can eventually do your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I really think that this is so true. And I, and I wonder, like, as you move forward, like, you know, how how you will you will continue to shape the ecosystem of gaming in Brazil and in the global south and connect with you know other developers you know i already know a lot of people in argentina a couple of folks in you know guatemala you know where they where they have traditionally done you know very small amounts of innovation and then you know they've broken out of the mobile gaming community for example and made games you know like daniel ben Mergi and and um, and several of his friends in Argentina would be the would be the example I would think of, where you know you saw this blossoming after the mobile gaming market reached Argentina, and so it feels like you'll have a similar sort of opportunity there to become the pillars in your own community. And I guess in in that way, you know, congratulations because now you can pass on what you've learned, you know, to younger generation of developers who are working in your space, and to fans who are inspired by you to continue to explore gaming and make games. What, what, what kind of advice would you have for people that are inspired by this podcast and thinking about, you know, stepping out on their own? Mm, yeah, I think we, we already, already gave some advice here, but uh, I like to really emphasize how your first project does not have to be like this big successful project. A lot of people that you see like just like as you see a successful game and and usually in some sites will say it's their first game but there's a lot of smaller projects that you haven't heard about that those people did so try to get experience by making smaller smaller projects try to reach out to other members of your community to to learn how how they they entered game development 
And you, Fernando, do you have something? Uh, yeah, I think that that's that's a that's very good advice, uh, and also to to make stuff like to 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 experiment to not wait to to for your first project to be like the the perfect one no, not wait for the perfect idea and try always to to try a bunch of different things and you gain experience like that and you eventually get a feel for what works what doesn't work and uh what is what what's what's a good idea look like yeah well, okay I, i remembered one advice that i like to give <laughs> I know this can be hard for some people, but usually when you're starting out, you don't have like the resources to, to have a lot of people to help you on your project. So try to always be open to learn new things. For example, during the development of Unsighted, we had sometimes to edit the trailers ourselves before, before we had the help of Humble Games when we were starting out. and. We're not video editors, and but we, we had to learn how to do it. We didn't wait to, until we had someone that could make a trailer for us to do it. And the same goes for all, all parts of the game development. Like I, I started uh, coding, but eventually I needed art for the game and I, I couldn't afford like like contracting someone to make the art for the game. So I I started learning how to do pixel art. And the same thing happened with Fernanda in how she started learning coding. And like we we didn't wait for <laughs> for us to have the resources to, to get more people on board to do all these things. And we we really tried to to make what we could ourselves. So you had the courage to learn and you had a learning <laughs> mindset, which, which made it okay for you to, to fail sometimes, right? Because you knew you were doing things more out of necessity than expertise. Yeah. And sometimes you, you will not make things perfect. Like those trailers that we did back then, they weren't good, but at least they were something. They were <laughs> something that we could show to people. And that's what mattered the most. It's better to have a flawed thing than to not have anything. So <laughs> don't be afraid to learn new things and fail sometimes. I think that's that's a fantastic way to end the podcast. I just want to say thank you so much to the both of you for making this beautiful game, for, for thinking about you know, diversity from the mechanics all the way through the story and the character arc and, you know, the design of everyone in the, in the experience and for, and for living your, your true lives and being your true selves out there for game developers everywhere. I think you're a huge inspiration and I just wish you both the best, really, honestly. And most importantly, have a fantastic holiday break. <laughs> Don't work too much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It was great speaking to you too. Take care too. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.